Matthew 16, verses 13 through 19, the word of God says this. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he was asking his disciples, who do people say that the son of man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist and others Elijah, but still others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say I am? Simon Peter answered, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my father who is in heaven. I also say to you that you are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. And whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. You know, it's, Fascinating that not everything that bears the name church is indeed a church. Have you noticed that? In fact, the Belgic Confession, which I doubt many of you have been reading this week, but I have, it has this very interesting line in it. It says, all sects which are in the world take for themselves the name of the church. In other words, any group that gathers together that wants some kind of religious legitimacy calls themselves a church regardless of the content of what happens inside their building. And of course, we see this played out in the world, everything from the Roman Catholic church to the Mormons, who the largest sect of the Mormons is called the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. I can assure you that neither are a real church. Our own evangelical society features everything from multi-campus churches, multi-site churches. Let's pretend this isn't happening right now. I've even heard of internet churches. You can go to church on the internet. In fact, I have been to a real live actual cowboy church before. Can I get an amen? Or at least a yeehaw? We have made the word church so appealing that it's been co-opted. There are now atheist churches, atheist churches. In fact, in Los Angeles, some of the atheist churches sponsor the uh, litter cleanup on the highways. It's phenomenal. There's nature churches, a church that meets out in nature. Google even led me to a wizard church, which a few clicks revealed is actually a fan club for Harry Potter. And of course, the danger with this concept of church is obvious. If everything is a church, then nothing is a church. It seems like an irrelevant question for us now, but October is upon us and we celebrate the Reformation, October 31st, Reformation Day. Understand that one of the driving questions of the Protestant Reformation is exactly the question that's on your screen. What is a true church? Because when Luther began the Reformation and Calvin followed along in Geneva, along with all the Anabaptists throughout Europe, Menno Simmons and others with Zwingli in in Zurich. The, The main accusation lobbed against them was that by leaving the Catholic Church, they're becoming ecclesiastical hobos. They're becoming homeless. They have no other church in which to go. If you walk away from the Catholic Church, then you don't have a church. That was the the objection levied against the reformers. It was not an objection based upon the the substance of what they were doing. It wasn't a theological response to the Protestant Reformation. They weren't arguing with the reformers on the merits. I mean, some Catholics were, but the 
by and large, the majority response to the Reformation was not, you're wrong about the doctrine, but it was, you have no church now. By leaving the Catholic church, where do you go? Who is your church? What is your church? There were not Protestant church buildings around. And it's very fascinating reading in church history how the Protestants answered that question. They did not answer it by saying, hey, we have an alternative to the Catholic church. We're gonna build a different kind of church that will be an option for you. It will be a, you know, so you could choose between the two churches. That was not their response. By and large, their response was to say that the Catholic church is not a church at all. It may have the word church in its name, but it is not a church, which is a very bombastic thing to say. Some of you might be filling out white cards right now. It's confrontational. It's not politically correct to say that the Catholic church is no church at all. But to say that, it requires you to have some kind of functioning definition of what is a true church. If you're going to eliminate things, and say this, although it has the name church is not a church, that may have a nice steeple, but it's not a church. That might have the word church in its URL, but that does not make it a church. <laughs> what is a church then? That's an inherently Protestant question to ask. <laughs> After all, the Catholic church would allege that they are the true church. They are the only church. And we respond with no, because a true church must have X, Y, and Z. And if you understand what makes a true church, it will eliminate everything from the Latter-day Saints to the Church of Scientology. They really call themselves a church. It's incredible. The key passage for this and understanding what a church is, is Matthew 16. It is the passage we just read. And of course, you can focus on verse 18. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. We've been in Matthew 8 for many months, and now Matthew 9 for the last few months. So we might lose sight of the big picture here, but the big picture in the Gospel of Matthew is that this right here in Matthew 16 is the first use of the word church. This is the first New Testament description of the church. Matthew is the first gospel written, and here is the first use in this first gospel of the word church. The word church was not described earlier in the book of Matthew. We've learned about the gospel. We've seen the prophecy of the death of Christ. We've learned that Jesus will be a friend to sinners and tax collectors, but we have not seen an introduction to the church. The Lord has saved that until here, Matthew 16. He's up at the very edge of Israel at Caesarea Philippi, the place where Israel's land runs out, the place where the cow God was uh, erected by the pagan kings of Israel to mark the northernmost border of Israel. Beyond this place was just pagan land. This is the place where Jesus gathers his disciples and he's going to begin his long march across the entire nation of Israel all the way down to the Sea of Galilee, along the Jordan River, and then up into Jerusalem. And he begins that march by asking his disciples, who do you think that I am? And the disciples rattle off some wrong answers. John the Baptist, which is a ridiculous answer, I might point out. I mean, they lived in a world without photographs. Nevertheless, there were probably tens of thousands of people that saw Jesus and John the Baptist in the same place at the same time. So it is a ridiculous assumption. Some say that you're Elijah because, of course, he had been carried away. Others, Jeremiah perhaps the most prof uh, passionate of Israel's prophets or any of the prophets in 
Jesus cuts through the noise and cuts through the nonsense and says, who do you say that I am? And this becomes, in many ways, the climax of Jesus' ministry here. If there could be a climax before the resurrection and the cross, this would be it. And it is here where the disciples, who have been, in many ways, half-witted and not seeing the full picture all kinds of times. I mean, they're... (laughs) I mean, they're barring Jesus from doing the essential parts of his ministry name moments ago. And we'll return to that again. I mean, this is, this is not the all-star lineup of Christianity here. But at this point, they get it right. You are the Christ, Peter says, the Messiah, the son of the living God. And Jesus takes that response and parries it into a description of what his church will be like. This is going to be the disciples' first lesson on the church. They will get another one in a few minutes, Matthew 18. Jesus is going to go up on the, the mountain in 17 and be transfigured, and he's going to come back down, still in Caesarea Philippi, and describe to them the way the church will work. But for now, he introduces them to what the church will be like. He's going to describe, even in this little introduction here, some essential elements of the true church. I'm going to give you four of them this morning. The first is that the true church has the right Lord. The true church has the right Lord. And by the way, I'm going to choose four. You can get as many of, I don't know, seven or eight elements of the true church out of just this little description here. I'm choosing four. These are the four that are in most confessions, most Protestant confessions, from the Westminster Confession to the London Baptist Confession to the Synods of of Dort to the Heidelberg Catechism, they, they all essentially have these same components of what a true church is, which is more than incidental. It's revealing the fact that this was a very critical question to the first Protestants. It was a very critical question to those who broke away from the Catholic Church to be able to clearly define what it was they're doing there, that they're not making a social club. The church is not a social club. It's not a gathering even of like-minded people. It is something that is being built by Jesus Christ himself. There are lots of false churches, but there's only one true church, and that's where we'll begin. The first mark of the true church is the right Lord. You see this in verse 18. I say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church. The church belongs to Jesus Christ. Lord is a fancy word. Of course, it's ascribed to God. It means the sovereign over the universe, but it is, of course, a play on the words we are doulos of Christ, we're douloi of Christ, we're the servants of Jesus Christ and are slaves of Christ and slaves have a Lord. The word Lord was used by the, the Jewish people to refer to God who is the Lord of heaven and earth, but Jesus uses it for himself to refer to himself as the Lord of the church. It's a word that was commonly used for the master of slaves. And so by Jesus using this word, he is revealing himself to be God and then claiming that he has authority over his church. Now you see it a little bit in verse 16 that Jesus is the Messiah, the son of the living God. And now Jesus is claiming that his Messiahship gives him the authority to exercise over the church. He will be in charge of the church. He is the builder of the church, he says in verse 18. He is the one who is building it. We are not building the church, our current construction project notwithstanding. The church does not belong to us. It belongs to Jesus. It is his church. It always makes me uncomfortable even when somebody asks me a question like, what time are the services at your church? That pronoun stumbles me a little bit, your church. I know what they mean. 
I mean, it's my neighbor might be asking me on the way out the door in the morning, hey, what time does your church start? It's not the time for a little Bible study in Matthew 16, normally because I'm running late. <laughs> my church starts, and I don't even say that. I say Emmanuel starts at, or, you know, 8 o'clock. That's what time we start. But just that phrase, your church, does it stumble you when you hear it? Maybe not. Maybe I'm overly sensitive. It stumbles me. <laughs> but it's too cumbersome to say, it's actually not my church. It's the church of Jesus Christ, of which I'm privileged to be a small part. <laughs> but it starts at 8 o'clock. <laughs> Understand that the church is Jesus's. You can call it your church. I'm glad for you to say it's your church if you're exercising ownership of it and you're exercising stewardship of your gifts here. As long as every time you say the phrase, oh, this is my church or this is your church, that you have a little asterisk next to it. In your mind, there's the footnote that says it's actually the church that belongs to Jesus. The church will be here after I die and it was here before I was Born, And that's one of the things I love about Emmanuel. All 50, what, five years of Emmanuel Bible Church? How old is it? 55 years, something like that? I was having breakfast with some pastors yesterday. I was the only pastor at the table that was not the founding pastor of their church. And I loved that. I know I just said the phrase their church, but you've got the footnote <laughs> underneath it, right? You know, and it sounds weird to say, uh, look at our, the glorious history of our church, all 55 years old of it. You know, understand that the lineage of the true church didn't start with Emmanuel Bible Church meeting in Robinson High School. The lineage of Emmanuel Bible Church goes all the way back to the Protestant Reformation. It goes all the way back from that to the forerunners of the Reformation. It goes all the way back to the saints scattered in India and Africa holding on to the essentials of a true church. It goes all the way back to the apostles. It goes all the way back to the upper room. It goes back to Acts chapter 2. That's where the church began. And that is the group of people that recognize the lordship of Jesus Christ, that he is the Lord. Any place that doesn't acknowledge the lordship of Jesus Christ is not a church. Any gathering of people that doesn't recognize that Jesus Christ is indeed the sovereign Lord of the universe. They might have a nice club. They might have Bibles in their hands. They might have Jesus fish on their cars, but they are not a church. The essential foundation of the church is that Jesus Christ is the Lord. And that's what Jesus means when he responds to Peter. The flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter. My father who is in heaven and this is the confession, the Peter's confession, that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah, that he is the son of the living God. That is the foundation upon which the church will be built. Only Jesus is the head of the church. Only Jesus, not the queen of England. She's not the head of the church. Not the pope. The pope is not the head of the church. The church doesn't belong to the head elder, whoever is rotating through the elder board. It certainly doesn't belong to the pastor. The church belongs to the Lord Jesus Christ. You see in this that the right Lord entails, entails Trinitarianism. Jesus himself describes eternity in this passage, that he is the son of his father. There is the heavenly father. He is the eternally begotten Lord. He has always been Lord, even in eternity past. He's always been the Son. There was never a time when the Son was not. He is eternally begotten of the Father. Peter himself even confesses this. 
Jesus identifies it. It wasn't revealed to you, but my father, the one who is the eternal father, he is always the father. Remember, if there was ever a time when Jesus wasn't the son, then that means there was a time when the father wasn't father because fathers have sons. My father who is in heaven, he is the one who revealed this. It speaks to the eternality of the Trinity. It speaks to the immediacy of the Trinity. The Holy Spirit is in the world revealing this truth to people. The Father is the one who sends. The Father is the one who who plans in that sense redemption. He sends his Son. The Son is the one who comes and dies on the cross and will be the Lord of the church. And the Spirit is the one who comes and builds the church by drawing people to it. That's Peter's The whole point of Peter's answer. And Jesus tells him, believe me, Peter, you did not figure this out in verse 17. I know you, Peter. You didn't figure this out on your own. (laughs) This certainly comes from my Father. It is revealed not by flesh and blood. It is the Spirit who reveals this in the church, sent by the Father. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 13, Paul says, we impart in words not taught by human wisdom, but taught by the Spirit. We interpret spiritual truths to people who are spiritual. The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God for their folly to him. He's not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. This lets you know that the church, the true church is not built on human reasoning. It's not designed to appeal to man's fallen senses because man's fallen senses are always wrong. So Jesus tells Peter that in light of his declaration that Christ is the Messiah, Something supernatural has obviously just occurred. The Holy Spirit is at work. The Father is at work. The Son, the Redeemer is in their presence. This will be the nature of the church. A true church is Trinitarian. Anything that is not Trinitarian and does not confess Jesus as Lord is not a real church. And of course, because Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth, he is the Lord of eternity. Death will not shut the church down. He says in verse 18, I will build my church and the gates of Hades or the gates of hell will not overpower it. There's much said about the gates being defensive and so the church is going on the offensive here. And I think some of that could be overstated. I mean, I take in this word picture, the gates of hell, you go through the gates to get to a place. You go through the gates of death to get to death. That's the idea. And Jesus says the gates of death will not defeat the church. In other words, the church is eternal. You can die and you can still be part of the church. And if death can't kill you, can anything kill you? If death doesn't defeat you, nothing can defeat you. The worst the world can do is kill you and they still lose. The church will conquer even life and death itself. And of course, you see this in the resurrection. Jesus is our resurrected Lord. Any church that doesn't acknowledge the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, of course, is not a true church. Any church that doesn't acknowledge the Trinity is not a true church. And any church that doesn't acknowledge Jesus as the Lord and the head of the church is not a true church. Well, a true church has the right Lord. Secondly, a true church has the right gospel. It has the right Lord and a true church has the right gospel. Jesus says in verse 18, you are Peter and upon this rock, I will build my church. Now he's obviously making a pun with Peter's name. In Greek, the word for rock is Petrus. And in Greek, Peter's name is Petros. So Jesus is saying, you are Petros and upon this Petros, I will build my church. So what is the Petros? Upon what rock is Jesus going to build his church? And the answer 
is twofold, of course. Peter is the rock. It was his confession that lays the foundation of this. Peter is going to be the preacher that builds the first churches. He is the one preaching the sermon in Acts chapter 2 on Pentecost. The church is launched on the back of Peter's ministry. He is the one that, that carries it. Despite all of his incompetence in the Gospels, he becomes the leader of the the church until James is installed as kind of the head elder, so to speak. Peter is the one who clearly in the book of Acts, the first half of it launches the church into the world. But what gives Peter his authority and his power? Nothing intrinsic in his office. It's not hereditary. It's not something he passes on to those underneath him. Peter had passed it on in his own lifetime, by the way. By Acts 15, Peter was no longer leading the church. What gave Peter his initial preeminence was this confession here in Matthew 16. The real foundation of the church, of course, is not Peter. It's the confession of Jesus Christ. It is the gospel. And that's what Jesus is indicating here. He doesn't tell Peter, you're the rock that I'm going to build a church on because Jesus could never pass up a good pun. Although as a pastor, I like pastor jokes, and so I'm drawn to that aspect of it. But it's not that Jesus was being punny. It was that he identifies here in Peter that his confession is the legitimate essential element of the church. The confession of Jesus as the Messiah is how the true church advances in the world. The church is built. Notice what Jesus says. Upon this rock, this confession, I will build my church. So how do you build upon the foundation? You build one rock at a time. You lay the foundation, which is Peter's apostolic ministry through his confession of Jesus Christ as the Savior and as the Lord of the church. You then build on that foundation one person at a time, one salvation at a time. The church goes forward into the world and is built one confession at a time. The church will grow as others echo Peter, as others hear the works of Jesus and they say, behold, the true son of God. This is the doctrine of personal conversion. Any group that does not believe in the doctrine of personal conversion is not a church. The hallmark of the church beyond having the right Lord is that you come to a saving relationship with that right Lord through the right gospel, through individual conversion. You are not born into the church. You are not joining the church by by giving, by works. The only way you enter the church is through your own personal conversion to Jesus Christ. Now, everybody in the world is in a personal relationship with Jesus Christ, whether or not they like it. (laughs) Jesus is the Lord of every human soul. It's just that most of the world doesn't acknowledge it and won't recognize it. The church is for those who through personal conversion, the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, whose eyes are opened, whose souls go from death to life, their eyes go from blindness to sight, their ears go from deaf to hearing the word of God. They're born again is the phrase. The church is those who are born again. And it happens individually, one person at a time as individuals confess Christ and trust him as their savior. A true church is people that do just that. And a church that fails to preach the gospel is not a true church. The gospel, of course, is that Jesus does die for sins. That's what it means that he is the Messiah in Peter's confession, that he will be the Savior. He will be the one that the Father bruises. He will be the one that is crushed by the Father for our iniquity. He does bear our sins. 
He is the true savior of the world. He is the king from the line of David. He is the man from the line of Adam. He is God in human flesh. This is the gospel that he led a sinless life and died on the cross for our sins. Resurrected on the third day because you cannot kill the Lord of life. And there's no other gospel than that. There's no other way for salvation other than that. There's no other good news to offer the world other than that. And a church that doesn't preach this gospel is not a true church. And the gospel here in this case includes the concept of judgment. Look at verse 19. I'll give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. This is speaking of eternal judgment, eternal damnation, sins that are really in a sense sealed on people in this life will be carried over into eternity. And Jesus repeats the same phrase in Matthew 18, by the way, to make it very clear what he's talking about. That there are those who refuse to repent of their sins and they have the judgment of hell on them. And so a group of people that does not believe in eternal life is not a church. And a group of people that does not believe in the reality of hell is not a church. Any group that denies hell is ceases to be a church. Jesus here makes it clear in verse 19 that the belief in eternal hell is an essential part of what it means to be a church. And of course, if you have a real gospel with a real Lord and a real hell and a real savior, then there is no room for personal improvement in the church. The church cannot be a club that is about advancing a political agenda. It can't be a self-help group. It can't be offering you six ways to get your life together. The church only has one way to help you get your life together, and that's through repentance and faith in Jesus Christ. There's no room for a gospel of personal improvement in the church because the church can only be built through personal conversion and salvation. The church advances into the world in hand-to-hand combat, one at a time. The church does not advance into the world by nuclear war. (laughs) We don't carpet bomb places. We grow our ranks individually, one person at a time, beginning with who Jesus is, he's the Messiah and he's righteous, and ending with who we are, sinners and aliens. And what bridges verse 18 and 19? The message of Jesus Christ, or as verse 20 says, that he is the Savior. He is the Messiah. When one person gives their life to the Lord of the church, the church is advanced. The angels rejoice and there is joy in heaven. That's how the church advances over the world. I used to have painted on my wall when I lived in Albuquerque, my own personal life motto, which was taking over the world one person at a time. Sounds arrogant now, (laughs) I confess, but I stand by the heart behind it. The gospel advances into the world one person at a time. The third mark of a true church. A true church has the right Lord, the right gospel, and thirdly, the right ordinances. And as I mentioned earlier, the nuts and bolts of the church are not described here in Matthew 16, although Jesus goes more in depth in Matthew 18. But he saves the full fleshing out of what the church will be for the book of Acts and the pastoral epistles. But you see, as the church comes into existence, the church will have elders, the church will have deacons, and that's all described, and you see it in the book of Acts, and then in 1 Timothy and Titus. It's an essential part of the church, having the right elders and deacons, having those offices. You know, a group of people meeting together with Bibles and the gospel that doesn't have elders is, again, not a church. It may be a 501c3, but it's not a church. But I don't want to spend too much time on that this morning. I want to focus this morning because we'll take the Lord's table in a second. A true church practices only these ordinances, communion and baptism. That's what the Lord gave us to, to 
really bind us together and mark our unity in the church. Everybody who's a member of the church has been baptized. Every single member of the church has been baptized. There's one Lord, there's one faith, there's one baptism. You're baptized by the Spirit when you're saved. You're baptized in water to be a public demonstration of your physical and personal union to the church. You're not baptized to earn your salvation. You're not baptized in order to get saved. And this is where the Protestants really, you know, kicked into gear when it came to the confrontation with the Catholics because the Catholics, of course, taught that there were seven sacraments and that they were all essential for salvation. This is why you had to go to a Catholic church because they had the sacraments. If you wanted to be saved, you needed to avail yourself of them. There was no salvation apart from them. And so you went to the church in order to take the mass. You went to the church in order to baptize your children. You went to the church in order to be married. You had to do those things in the church. And the Protestants stepped back and said, whoa, if you practice any of those things saying you need them for salvation, you are not a church. Because a true church does not dispense things in order for you to be saved. A true church celebrates baptism and celebrates communion with those who already are saved. By taking communion, you're confessing your salvation. You're breaking the same bread. This is why we take communion as a church and not as a Bible studies or as families or as home groups or on retreats. Because it's something you do when the church is together. This is why we do baptism at the church. It marks our union with the church. Now, if you do, you know, if you got baptized at an Awana retreat or something like that, or if you take communion with a, a Bible study retreat, that's not a big deal. But you're understanding that by taking it there, you're taking it because you're part of this church. You're not making your own church out in the hills somewhere. Because we have a different word for that. Cult, I think, is the word for that. <laughs> but baptism and communion are given as marks of the church. And you cannot be saved by taking them. Once you teach that, you cease to be a church. And to understand that, you really do need this fourth point here. That a, a true church has the right Lord, the right gospel, the right ordinances, and it has the right membership. It has the right membership. And this is what I mean by that. It's from verse 19. People who refuse to repent from their sins stand condemned. And people who do believe the gospel are added to the church, have their sins forgiven. And the church can with confidence and authority say that if you believe the gospel, your sins are loosed from you. You are forgiven of your sins. The church can declare that with confidence. I can look you in the eyes from the pulpit and say, if you believe in the gospel of Jesus Christ, your sins are forgiven. And I have no doubt about that. Because Jesus himself says so here. Now, do you understand how three and four are connected? If you teach that the sacraments, these ordinances of baptism and communion help lead you to forgiveness of sins, then I would not be able to look at you and say, if you believe the gospel, your sins already are forgiven. I'm reading from the New American Standard this morning. I normally read from the ESV, but I'm reading from the New American Standard because I love the, the way they render this verb tense. In verse 19, whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven. It's a, we don't, we don't use the pluperfect in English normally. <laughs> but it's saying it's already has been completed and happened in heaven. If you repent of your sins, they've already been forgiven. They have been loosed in heaven. That's because the church is for the saved. Googling the word church this week, I found all kinds of 
places that describe themselves as a church for the lost. Ha! <laughs> Not a true church. And I found the phrase, seeker-sensitive church. Double ha! <laughs> you should be the seeker. The church should be seeking the lost. A church is not designed to be a place for the lost. A church is designed to be the worship of the found. And you then scatter and you are the seekers. Don't put the burden on other people. Don't tell other people, oh, if you seek God, then come to Emmanuel. No, you need to be the seeker. You go into the world. The church is where we gather and worship God. And then you scatter and seek out the lost. A true church is not designed for those who are outside of Christ. A true church is not designed for the lost. A true church is designed for those whom Jesus has found. And of course, way more could be said about this. Matthew 18, Jesus picks this up and says, this is why a church membership has to be those who are repenting of their sins. And if there is anybody who joins to the church that does not repent of their sins, they should be put out of the church. And he says, send them out. If they don't repent and they don't listen to the elders, dismiss them from the church. And don't, don't break a sweat over doing it. I mean, doing it with grief. But Jesus says, don't panic over doing it because when you do that, I am with you, he says. This is me acting through you. And so a church that doesn't do discipline, a church that doesn't do the public discipline of believers is not a true church. They don't fence their membership. They don't have a concept of holiness, which means they don't have a concept of personal conversion, which means the ordinances are all messed up, which means the whole thing crumbles. So I hope you see how these build. A church that does the public discipline of believers is merely indicating that the other three are in order. And that's why Jesus ends this in Matthew 19 with whatever you bind on earth will have already been bound in heaven. It's just a fancy way of saying, not that there is the church of Rome has the ability to condemn people in their sins any more than they have the ability to forgive sins. It's a fancy way of saying in Jesus's words here that the gospel forgives you of your sins. And if you don't believe the gospel, you cannot have your sins forgiven. And you should have the authority and the integrity in your own life to be able to look at those who are outside of Christ and say you are lost if you don't repent. The most loving thing you can do to someone who refuses to repent from their sins is to declare that they are lost and to give them an invitation to come to Christ. The worst thing you could do is to tell them, oh, you can be part of the church even while you're lost in your sins. You cease to be a church. This is so countercultural. It matches none of the Jewish expectations for the church, which is why, of course, Jesus then in verse 20 tells his disciples, don't tell anyone about this. <laughs> Keep this between you and me. This is going to be a lot more palatable after the resurrection <laughs> when he conquers death. So church, let me appeal to you. Appreciate what we have at Emmanuel. It is it's not the only true church in Springfield. It's not the only true church in our zip code. But any church that is a true church has these four things in common. We worship the right Lord. We possess the right gospel, which we proclaim boldly. We practice the right ordinances, baptism and communion, not to be saved, but to demonstrate the work of the Lord in your life and our unity as a church. And we have a membership that is seeking the Lord, that desires to be part of the body of Christ and is through the kindness of God. Lord, we're thankful that though our church has a, a six-story cross on its roof, that's not what makes us a church.
And we have a cross on our bumper sticker. It's not what makes us a church. Though our website is ibc.church, that is not what makes us a church. We're thankful that what makes us a church is the gospel of Jesus Christ. That you are the Lord of the church. That you have given us these ordinances, baptism and communion, to celebrate our union with you. And you've given us brothers and sisters in the Lord that we worship with here to celebrate our union with you. We give you thanks for this privilege in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for being with us today. And now, a parting word from Pastor Jesse. If you have any questions about what you heard today, or if you want to learn more about what it means to follow Christ, please visit our church website, emmanuelbible.church. If you're not a member of a local church and you live in the Washington, D.C. area, we'd love to have you worship with us here at Emmanuel. I hope to personally meet you this Sunday after our service. But no matter where you live, it's our hope that everyone who uses this resource is involved in their own local church. Now may God bless you this week as you seek Jesus constantly, serve the Lord faithfully, and share the gospel boldly.